preaching through the parables and, and working our way through, through them. And so we're going to start today with uh, the Good Samaritan. Now, interestingly enough, although we have typically always heard that the Good Samaritan is a parable, there's actually not biblical proof that this is a parable. We've always just listed it as one of the parables, but in the passage where we find the Good Samaritan that we're going to look at here in a moment, there is never any statement by Jesus that this is a parable. There's never any statement that this is a story that he's using just for illustration purposes, but that you know didn't really happen. Because uh, in other places, you'll see the Bible actually say that he spoke to them in a parable, or or he he taught them in a parable, or he used a parable to to get something across. We don't see that here, but because that most people have typically accepted this being a a parable or been taught that, this is the first one we're going to do. But we're, as we go and read through this, we're going to kind of talk about why it may be important that this really is not a parable as much as it is more of an illustration. And it's a, it may be a true story that is just used to illustrate the point. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And here's what that says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, this is being Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, this being Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Hmm. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, this being the lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray over the word. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for Jesus and for the great lessons that he teaches us through your word. God, I pray you open our hearts. I know we've heard maybe this story many times if we've been in church. But God, I pray that, that this is just fresh and new to us and that you reveal something to our hearts individually that maybe we've not seen before. Or maybe you move us from hearing the word to doing the word. And God, I just pray that in the name of your Son and our strong Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the most interesting things about the, the first part of this passage is Jesus' response to this lawyer in the Socratic method. And the Socratic method is you respond to a question with a question. Okay? Uh, most people will tell you, because of the fact that, uh, that the Socratic method kind of turns the tables, I think we almost developed a thing in society where we say it's rude to answer a question with a question. I actually think that it wasn't so much about it being rude as it was you wanted to get something out of somebody and they turn around and ask you a question in response. So you go, that's rude. Because then it puts it back on you, right? So this guy asked Jesus this initial question. He starts out and he says, uh, 
He says, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's the law say? Now, there, there's some interesting things about this because one of the things that this does is the first thing is it directs the man to an authority that they both can accept as being true. You got to remember, this whole time that Jesus is, is alive, there is no New Testament. There's nothing, there's no written New Testament. The only thing they have is the, is the law. They've got the law there. They've got the Old Testament. And so when you know, Jesus doesn't have the ability to be able to say, well, you know, hey, let's turn over to Mark chapter or, or John chapter. That's not there. So first thing he does is in order to have a legitimate discussion with this man, he finds a common ground that they both can accept as being true. So he says, what does the law say? What does it tell you? It avoids an argument because by forcing the man to answer, here's what the Word of God says, then it was a discussion about what they had already seen in the Word. It wasn't a discussion about my opinion versus your opinion versus what somebody over here said or this particular religious sect says this and this group says it's something else. The third thing that it did was it placed Jesus in, in turning the tables, it placed Jesus in a position to evaluate the lawyer's response instead of the lawyer being able to evaluate Jesus' response. There's some lessons there, honestly, in having discourse with people who maybe are not followers of Christ, but who want to question things of the Word, is to be able to follow Sometimes we can learn from the methods that Jesus used in having discussions with people. So the lawyer responds, and the lawyer gives an orthodox answer or a scripturally accurate answer. He says, well, this is what. This is what it says. It's, it's, he gives a scripturally accurate restatement of what the Bible says. Well, you've got to love the Lord your God, you know. You've got to do all this stuff. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. All right, that's what it says. But Jesus is going to point out to him that this love was going to require more than having an orthodox or a scripturally accurate answer. It was going to require an orthodox action, a scripturally accurate action. Because oftentimes in our discussions about Christianity, we can say what the Word says. We just don't do what the Word says do. That's where the Bible talks about us, the people being hearers of the word only, but they're not doers. So this guy knew what the word said, so he gave this scripturally accurate answer, but he wasn't really liking the scripturally accurate action that was going to be required. So we're going to look at three things out of this passage today. We're going to talk for just a few moments about the people that are involved in this. We're going to talk a little bit about the road. How about that? We're going to talk about this road. And then we're going to talk about the response that's supposed to occur. So let's take a moment and let's talk about the people. Now, we could talk about Jesus. But even within all of that, Jesus points to this story that includes really... Uh, there's really four people that are involved because you've got to count the guy that's laying on the road, beaten and bruised and all that. But, but the three people that are really involved in this story is this priest, this Levite, and in this Samaritan. And uh, I was thinking through this week, and I was talking with, with Gene earlier this week, and I said, you know, a lot of people in church have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. They've heard this, that, that man, there's this guy beaten and bloody and bruised, and he's, all his clothes have been taken, all his stuff has been taken. So just for a moment in talking about the guy that's lying there before we focus on these three main folks that are in the story, really all of the identifying factors of who or what this man was were gone. I find that to be an interesting part of this. Because let's say that he had, was a highly, you know, affluent you know, guy. He had a lot of money, and so he was very richly dressed. Would it have impacted the priest and the Levite differently if they had seen a guy lying there who is obviously very wealthy? 
Would it have changed their opinion to go, ah, if we help this guy, there could be a reward involved in this deal. This guy is obviously rich and well-to-do, so if we help him, there might be a chance somebody will give us a little bit of reward, and we can be very, oh, you don't have to do, you don't have to do that, <laughs> right? You know, and so when you, when you would, I remember when I used to go to youth camp, and, and uh, they'd be doing some of the funny skits or whatever, and everybody started applauding, and, and they'd be like, no, no, you know, the one hand going no, and the other hand like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We really don't know if he was an absolutely poor guy because his clothes maybe would have indicated that, but they're gone. We don't know if he had a bunch of stuff with him because there's nothing there. They've taken everything. So all we really can see, man, and I thought, oh, okay, Lord. I think there's really a message in this. All that can be seen is a person in desperate need. Not a rich person not a poor person. We don't really know. He may have been beaten to the point of not even being able to distinguish whether he was Jewish, whether he was Roman, whether he was a Samaritan. I mean, it, 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 there's some physical differences that would show up on a lot of people, but he's been beaten so much. It's just a person who's in desperate need. But I, I, I begin to ask myself, so why, why was it important in this story that both a priest and a Levite because it wasn't a priest and just someone out of the normal Jewish community. It, it wasn't just like the priest and a regular citizen. It was a priest and a Levite. So I had to ask myself, why is that? And so then, what are the differences between priests and Levites? So this, is, this is the thing that I really believe. When we read stories and passages of Scripture that we have heard preached often, we've We've read them often. We've thought about them. Maybe even if we grew up in church and you were in kids' church, you heard about it a lot. Sometimes we'll just kind of blow right through something because I've heard it. I know it. You don't have anything extra that you're going to bring to me. I already know the moral of this story. Um, but the bigger we expand our understanding of the people that are involved, the things that are involved, then the more that we begin to truly grasp the impact of a story. So let's talk about priests and Levites for a moment. The priests and the Levites all came out of the same group of people. They came out of this, this tribe of Levi. That's why they were called Levites. All priests came out of the Levite group, but not all Levites were priests. So it would be like saying that if, um, if, if you had 20 people from your family here and y'all all had the same last name, but uh, some of you uh, maybe own a business or some of you work here or there, wherever you can say, well, all of us sitting right here are this last name, but only some of us do this for a living. So the priest came out of Aaron's, Aaron's family and his lineage within this Levite group, this tribe of Levi, and then you've got Aaron over here, and so the priest come out of his side. There are a lot of differences between priests and Levites. We're going we're gonna to cover some of these here in just a moment. But then when you move all the way up to Jesus' time, now there were two groups going on in their society, and the Sadducees were the ones who still had the, the priestly side going on. All the priests fell within the Sadducees. You had the chief priests, and then you had the high priests that were all a part of this Sadducee group. We've most often heard of Sadducees and Pharisees. All right, the Sadducees were one half. So you had Sadducees and Pharisees that were the ruling group. Sadducees are obviously half of that as far as there being two of them. But they held the majority of 70 seats in the Sanhedrin, which you, you almost could, a very loose comparison would be maybe to, to our House of Representatives or to our congressmen. Uh, but, but they had a little more, a little more power. But the Sadducees had the majority of these 70 seats. They were aristocrats. They were wealthy. You know, they had money. They had position. They had power. One of their biggest issues, though, was that they were more concerned with politics than they were with religious beliefs. The Pharisees actually 
had more influence with the people even though they were the minority between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees, there were more of them, but they really weren't concerned about religion. Not really. They were more concerned with how it gave them political power. So during Jesus' time, because you've got to remember that, so you had time prior to Christ where it would have been very much focused on the idea of the Levites and uh, the Aaronic the priest. But then you get up here, and so in the very time that he's talking about, there are, there are probably Sadducees that are in this group that are hearing this conversation because they've moved from, you know, from necessarily being the type of priest and Levites that God had originally established to they're just worried about politics now. And so Jesus has given a story that has basis in God's original intent with the priests and with the Levites, but yet the people that are there and hearing this story are mentally applying it, thinking about these politicians. That's really what, man, I, I almost hate to say it. This is really what church leadership had become in their time it had become a group of politicians. Here's a comparison of things that happen between priests and Levites. So and when you're going through Leviticus and you're seeing how that, that these guys are, um, are consecrated, how they are set forth in order to be in these positions, the priest were made holy. The Bible describes them as being made holy. The Levites were made clean. The priest got anointed and washed. Actually, when you see this originally happen, you see, you see Moses doing, doing this, anointed and washed, but yet the Levites just got sprinkled. The priest, they were given new garments, but the Levites had to wash their own garments and cleanse them the priest had blood that would be applied. It would be applied to an ear tip and to a, a big toe on the right foot. But the Levites just had blood that was waved over them. It's an indication. It, 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 there's this whole process of you being cleansed then and a, and a forerunner of Jesus' blood washing away all of our sins. The priest could enter the holy place. You've got to remember... In the, when the temple was established back then, you couldn't just go before God. There was, there was an outer court and an inner court. There was a holy of holies, and only that the priest could go into that holy of holies. And he would go in like once a year and, and would make sacrifices. And remember, they, he, would have, he would have bells around the bottom of his robe, and they would have a rope tied around one of his feet because if he was unclean to go into God's presence... And he went into that holy place. He dropped like a rock. And, and so, you know, that's why the rope's there, guys. Rope's around his foot because if, if you can kind of, if you, do, if you hear, the, if the bells aren't ringing and all, you know, guy's, guy's gone. I mean, and so you'd have to pull him out. All right? Man, there's something to be said for us understanding that a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever required us to be cleansed and required that priest to be holy. And even inside that, that holy place, they would burn incense so that the smoke even would kind of obscure. It was, it was another method of using, in, you know, to... to even though God could still see, but it was a, a method of trying to hide because of our uncleanness. And we're just, we're just getting clean as a priest to go in through sacrifices and, and things like that. It, it's, the, it's letting us see the amazing work that Jesus Christ then later does by then once and for all making sacrifice for us so that then the veil, when he's on, when he's on Calvary, when, he's, when Jesus is dying on the cross and, and the, the ground begins to shake and it says, and the, and the veil was rent from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth, it was opened up so that we could then come before the presence, come before the holiness of God 
and make our petitions known because that Jesus Christ had washed away our sins once and for all, that we no longer had to make a, a daily or annual or any kind of sacrifice like that. We now could walk in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We sing that song sometimes. We sing, He became sin who knew no sin. Why? That we might become His righteousness. So that his right standing before God, Jesus' right standing before God, could now be imputed to us so that we could go into that holy place that then only the priest could go into. But the Levites had some responsibilities as well. The Levites did caretaking of the tabernacle and its furnishings. So the priest would be inside, would be offering sacrifices to God, who would be leading the people before God who would go into the holy place on behalf of the people but the Levites themselves would they would take care of the tabernacle they would take care of the furnishings they served as officials judges gatekeepers they even served as musicians all in aid to the priests and later they became teachers and administrators of the law Gene and I were eating breakfast he said yeah you know somebody if they wanted to know then can I do this on this particular type of day, then these guys are the ones who would be, they would be the teachers and the administrators of the law to say, well, yes, or no, you can't, and here's why. But both the priest and the Levite crossed over to the other side in order to avoid the man who had been beaten and robbed. So the age-old question is always, why? Why did they do that? And the word actually doesn't tell us why they did. It just tells us they did. So we have to go through and look and say, well, what are some of the reasons? Now, the main reason that is, that is probably one of the drivers is what's found in Numbers chapter 19, verse 16. It says, this is part of the law, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So for seven days, they were considered to be ceremonially unclean and therefore they would not be able to serve in any religious leading capacity for seven days, a whole seven days. What about some other excuses? Well, you can just imagine these guys, because we're not actually told. We're told that the man who was beaten was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right? Now, if it had told us that the priest and the Levite were on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho, then we would know, because Jerusalem was where these guys would go and serve in their in their capacity as priests. They would go through these cycles where they would go and they would serve a charge for a certain amount of time, and then they could return back to their home. But it actually doesn't tell us. It just says they're on the road. But we see that the, the one guy, the guy who gets beaten, was on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So there's a lot of speculation that could go on. There's a possibility this guy was a priest. There's a possibility this guy was a Levite. Could have just been a business person. We don't know. But for the, for the Levite and the priest, you can just imagine, what if they were coming from Jerusalem back to Jericho and the guy could go, man, I have been serving people all week. I've been, I've been leading people in worship. I've been doing all this stuff. I'm ready to go home. I got time for this. I don't have time for this. What if he was on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem to serve? And said, hey, I'm on my way to church. I don't have time to stop to deal with this issue. Because then for seven days then, I mean, I'm supposed to be going and serving. I'm supposed to go fulfill this official duty that I have. But if I touch this guy and then I let him, I know that then I'm ceremonially unclean. I can't go and serve in my role. So I'm just going to have to go on by this fella. Because I got something more important to do. I got to go serve people. He almost says something and go, if you could put words in his mouth, it'd almost be, I can't stop and serve this guy because I gotta go serve people. Right? I I can't I can't be of impact in this guy's life because I gotta go be of impact in some people's life. 
I can't minister to this guy's hurt and wounds because i got to go minister to hurt and wounded people. So sometimes I, I think maybe that's what we get in our heads. We're so focused on just a, a simple, assignable task and whatever that if God tries to interrupt us by saying, look, the real truth is you're probably you're just going to go through on an average day, you may be going and doing good religious worship, and that's great. But I'm putting somebody very specific into your path that you can stop, and instead of worship and service being a general thing, and I'm going to be here, and y'all come to me, and you know, because I'm here in the temple as a priest, and, and you can show up, and I'll bless your sacrifice. I'm going to put somebody here at your feet that needs ministry, real-life stuff. Well, the guy could have told himself if he started getting convicted about that, he could have gone, well, you know, the bandits might still be somewhere around. So I probably need to move on. I don't need to place myself in a position where that, that these men... And that sounds, that sounds right to us, doesn't it? I mean, hey, I mean, you're going to stop and help this guy, and you're going you're gonna to get, get robbed. I mean, that one we can kind of even convince ourselves of. Then he may have he thought, well, but you know, they might have moved on. Then he could tell himself, but you know, hey, what? It's not my fault this guy got attacked. I mean, honestly, this guy may have done something that brought this on, him, on himself. He may have been coming down through here just letting everybody see all the money that he had or what. He might have been counting his coins while he was walking around. What do you, what do you expect's going to happen if he's doing that? So not my fault, and this guy might have done it to himself. And then if he still got convicted, he could go, we know what this is a busy road. It's a busy road. Somebody else is going to come along because I, then he can revert back to his first one. Because I need to go make sure that I'm prepared because there's people waiting on me. There's people waiting on me to serve. I'm not, if I'm going home, I can't see my family then for seven days because I'm unclean, you know. I'm not supposed to go outside to camp and all this. And, but if I'm going, you know, if I'm on my way to Jerusalem and I'm fixing to go serve the church, well, then who's going to do my job for those seven days? So, so you know what? Somebody else will come along. But then we have this Samaritan guy. Who are Samaritans? What are Samaritans? Samaritans were people that were uh, of mixed race. They weren't Jewish entirely. They weren't anything entirely. And so people looked down on, on Samaritans. And there was, a, there was an antagonism toward Samaritans. There was a, an attitude of superiority toward Samaritans. They were... They were treated like they were second class. They were treated like they didn't, they didn't have the same value as other people. And Jesus chooses to use an illustration that has someone that is considered to be less than, considered to be not as good as, not have, and, and they are the hero who acts in godlike fashion. Now, this is one of the reasons why many commentators say that, that this, they believe this to not be a parable. Because there is no response from the Jewish people in the crowd to this story to go, that's ridiculous. There's no Samaritan that's ever going to do that. There's not any Samaritan that's going to, to you know, go and, and minister to somebody like that. That's not going to happen. That's not who they are. You don't get that. There's, there's, there just seems to be an acceptance of the story. Which is why many commentators say they believe that, that this was a known story in the area. That people had heard this story before. Otherwise, there's no way they would have believed that someone they didn't think had this kind of capacity would actually do this. And there's, oh no, there's no way that a priest would just walk by. I mean, he would, he would go ahead and suck it up and... And go his seven days of uncleanness. But you never see that response. This Samaritan comes by and all he sees is somebody who's in need. I started thinking about the road. Once you see this, uh, this map, if you can kind of see, you've got, uh, you've got Jericho right up here. 
You've got Jerusalem, and it's right over here. Now, this looks like it's huge, right? That's 14 miles. It's 14 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's a, it's a winding road. It goes through ravines, which is why that it was such a place for bandits to be able to get. There's plenty of places to hide. But it's a 14-mile trip walking down through all these ravines and, and winding around. It was a highly traveled road. Because that Jericho and Jerusalem were both uh, such busy cities, and because that you would have often have a lot of priests and, and Levites in the Jericho area, and then, of course, Jerusalem being the hub of everything, including the hub of their worship and for the temple and all of this, then there's a lot of travel that occurs on this road. Now, the question becomes, why didn't Rome who was in, in charge at this point. This is why the, the Sadducees uh, were so tight with Rome and all the politics. Why didn't Rome or the Jews do something to make this road safer? If you, if you do some study historically about Rome, they were, they were very focused on improving roads. They would, they would create these nice roads and passages to be able to get back and forth in, in the Roman Empire, including in these areas. So, you know, why? Why didn't somebody do something with this 14-mile stretch of road where there's a lot of priests and Levites that have to go back and forth? There's business people that have to go back and forth. Somebody do something to make the road safer. I read this statement this week, and it stuck with me so much that I want to share it with you. The guy said, this is why this happened. It's much easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve a neighborhood. It's much easier to just keep doing the status quo. You get from Jericho to Jerusalem, you serve, serve in the church, do your stuff, but the neighborhood that you got to pass through to get from your home to your church, it's easier just to keep doing church than it is to change the neighborhood. Just, just think about that for a minute. It's easier to go to our house where we live and we're comfortable in whatever our environment is and then I'm going to drive over to church and I'll be comfortable there and, and I'll be satisfied in that environment. But what about changing the neighborhood that we drive through between those two points? What about doing the difference? Now here's the thing, and this is the parallel that I saw with Rome. Rome was fixing roads in other places. Rome was fixing roads in other areas. Probably areas that were not as dangerous, that were maybe even not as traveled. But who knows? For whatever reason, they chose not to fix this dangerous area because, hey, you're going to have to clear out into these ravines. You're going to have to open up the roadway and make it where bandits can't hide as easily. It's going to be difficult to do. It's just easier. Just everybody keep doing what they're already doing. Go serve. Go do your church stuff. Yeah, there's going to be some people get robbed. There's going to be some people get shot. There's going to be some people have this other stuff happen, but... But we can live with that because it's difficult to change the neighborhood. Let's just maintain the religious system. I wonder, I wonder if in this story of the Good Samaritan, if we ever have really grasped and thought about that. Have we thought about, why didn't somebody do something? But I wonder at times if our, in our own world and if God himself is not looking at us and saying, well, you know that there are things happening around you where people are robbed and beaten and all this stuff. Why don't you do something to change the neighborhood? I'm, I'm going to kind of leave that alone for the moment. Just let God work on that. So what about the response? What about the response that Jesus had and that, that this lawyer had? Jesus moved this conversation. 
Because the lawyer wanted to talk about duty, but God moved it from duty to love. The lawyer wanted to debate, but Jesus moved it from a, a matter to be debated to a matter for something to be done. I mean, it, it's so easy for us to focus on, well, just give me the list, Pastor. Tell me what my duty is. And God is saying, look, yeah, there's things in the Word that you have a duty to, but then, you know the problem with lists? The problem with list is that if you give people six things they need to do, and then a seventh thing that wasn't on the list pops up, and it really ought to be done, they'll go, I mean, look, i got a lot of people that have worked for me over the years. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say, well, that wasn't on the list of stuff you told me to do. Right? Yeah. Now, look, if, if we got kids at some point, you've told them, hey, while I'm gone, I need you to do this, this, and this. And then you come back, and they go, well, I was there, and this, this, and this happened. And then I saw this over here, and you go, well, what would you do with it? Well, that wasn't on the list. You didn't tell me to do anything with that. You know, yeah, what happened was, I mean, you forgot to put on the list, you know, feed the cat. And the cat's at the door when you come home. And, I mean, you know, it's just, wah, 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 and you're going, hey, did you not think? I mean, the cat's pushing its bowl to you, you know. <laughs> And, and you go, hey, did you not know? Well, that wasn't on the list. You didn't tell me to feed the cat, <laughs> right? Lists become, but we like lists because of that. Now, one half of us likes lists because that way I know for sure what I need to do, all right? That's not a negative thing. But we also like lists because then this is all I have to do. This is it. So we like to go, well, just tell me this list of stuff. And, and that really is the heart of this conversation, this lawyer looks at Jesus and says, give me the list of what I need to do in order to be saved. And Jesus says, what's the law say? Well, it says bullet list, bullet item number one, bullet item number two, bullet item number three. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. You know, the guy goes, well, who's my neighbor? Let me tell you a story. Guy, guy was wanting bullet item number four. Tell me who my neighbor is. All right, so I know i got to do one, two, and three, and one of those includes love my neighbor, so let's narrow down who my neighbor is. Just give me the list. God, tell me who my neighbor is. Jesus says, ah, let's talk about this story. Let's move from you identifying how you can have a duty to do something to having love that moves you to do not out of duty, but out of love. Now, here's, what, here's where we get messed up then. When you start taking Scripture in entirety and thinking through stuff like this, this is where you get messed up. Because we still want to ask, well, in this situation, in today's world, in, in our environment, Pastor, what do I need to do? Item number one, two, three, four. But yet, the Word tells us, do all things as unto the Lord. Well, wait a minute. Now... I don't have to do this if, if this person is not the right person. Or if it's not the right... He says, well, do all things as unto the Lord. Now, do you do things for the Lord because that, that it's out of duty? Or are we supposed to do things for the Lord because it's out of love? Now, here's an interesting... Because there's not a, there's not a yes-no answer to both that. Because there are things that we should do out of obedience to God. And if you want to call that duty... I would rather that you start with duty. If you, if you don't have either one, then start doing things that the Word tells you to do and praying for God to change your heart about why you're doing them. Because if God's Word says do this, then we ought to do it, even if we're having to ask God to work on our heart on why we're doing it. Because the Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is important. That's what in Matthew 28, that's what he told us to do, was that we were supposed to teach people to obey all the things that he's commanded. Obey it. But obedience can be done out of duty, or it can be done out of love. And if, and if you've got to start somewhere, then I really believe that most of the times the progression begins with understanding that God's Word says to do it, so obey because it says that, and then God will eventually change your heart. I had a pastor one time I served under. I've used this illustration before, but it was the best illustration I'd ever heard. 
He said, your life and, and obeying like this is like a train. And your head duty is the engine up here and your heart is the caboose. And he said, when you start doing what you know in your head, obeying out of duty, eventually your heart will pass the place where your head has been. He said, but you got to obey whether you felt like it or not. Because we go, well, my, I, my, my love, my emotion doesn't make me want to obey in this. Yes, but God's word says do it. So we obey, and God will change our heart, and God will shape our heart around having love to do things that we know we ought to do, but we don't feel like we want to do. Man, look, if you've had a tough week, you've lost a lot of sleep or whatever else, you hit Sunday morning, you go, man, you know, I, I know I ought to, ought to go hang out, you know, with people from church. Not because you ought to come to church because, oh, my goodness, it's a sin if you don't. But because, man, I know, you know, Hebrews tells us, don't forsake the assembly together yourselves as a man or some, especially as you see that day approaching. Man, I know. Well, some of you may not feel like doing. But yet you still do. He doesn't know I'm going to do this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Is this two weeks in a row? Did you have to work this morning too? Yeah. Our youth pastors had to work both this Sunday and last Sunday. How about that? He goes in. What time did you go in? Got there at 4 this morning. And then by when, when Wendy and them came in at 9 o'clock, she came out and told us, hey, Stephen's on his way. So he went in at 4. He worked. He headed this, this direction. Did the same thing last week. Worked last week. Now, am I just patting him on the back? Yes. Absolutely. I absolutely am. You know why? Because that's, that's, a, that's a love for wanting to be loving these kids and wanting to be here in that class with them. Loving all of you and wanting to be here in fellowship with you. And he wants to sing and he wants to go. Why? Because your head may say that you want to do something. And then your heart may say, man, it'd be nice to just go home and get some sleep. <laughs> right? But yet your love for God in your heart overcomes that and says, hey, so it moves from duty to love, move from debating to doing. There's a lot of debating that goes on in our society when it comes to this concept of the Good Samaritan. We'd rather spend more time debating about, about you know, I'm not going to stop and give money to the guy on the side of the road holding up a sign. Fine, then find out what he wants to eat. Go get it, you know, or something. Well, you know, now we just need to decide whether these people are worthy. I don't know. I wasn't worthy for what Jesus did for me. Right? It's easy. It's easy for us to talk about abstract ideals and yet fail to help solve concrete problems. There's probably more discussion that goes on. I, I heard a great statement. It said, you know, the, the, the bad thing about committees is that all committees are not that committed. <laughs> right? You know? You can get a committee together to do something and never get anything done because they're not really committed to doing as much as they're committed to debating. I don't like committees. Just share that. We can discuss things like poverty and job opportunities, but never personally help feed a hungry family or help somebody find a job. Look, you know, and, and I'd be the first one. I'd be the first one to raise my hand and say, yes, I have said, you know what? They need to get a job. But then I've had to start dealing with God, convicting my heart and saying, so, okay, so what are you doing to help them get a job? Well, now I can't help you know, if I get somebody a job, and then they turn around two weeks later, they've already lost their job because they won't show up and work. And I, okay. But what part did I play in, in trying to... That doesn't mean i got to go vouch for somebody and say, hey, I don't know this person, I don't mean that. But yes, they're going to be committed to you. But I can try to help. I can try to help and say, God, if I believe the people, then how can I communicate? How can I share? Hey, there's a job opening over here. Hey, they're going to have a job fair over there. Hey, can I help you with your resume? Do you have a resume? Can I help you with what you're going to have to do in an interview? You know, different ones of us have different roles and things that we've experienced and the ability to be able to help somebody. But we can discuss these things. Oh, God wants us to impact poverty. Well, what are we going to do? Well, God wants us, you know, people need a chance to get a job. Well, how are we going to help people find a job? 
We tend to think about the high cost of caring. See, that's, that's what the, that is what the priest and Levite, that's what we assume, since we have no real insight given in Scripture, we assume that's what they thought about. And, and that's probably true. We assume they thought about, if I stop and do this, the cost is I lose seven days. I lose seven days of being able to serve. I lose seven days of being able to be with my family. I, I'm, there's a high cost to me stopping, because what if this guy's dead? So if you notice, it doesn't say, Numbers 19 and 16 that we read didn't say if somebody was beaten and bloody and all that. It says if they were dead. If you touch someone that was dead. So can you imagine? I mean, honestly, how difficult would it have been to come over and not touch him and go, hey, man, hey, 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 hey. I mean, get a stick. I don't know that it said if you touch him with a stick. I mean, push his foot or something. Hey, 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 hey. And if he went, oh, he's not dead. I can touch him. It's all right. Right? But they, and this is what makes me worry about their motive. This is what makes me worry about their motive not just being, I don't want to be ceremonially unclean. Because, you know, here this guy is walking along, and he sees, uh-oh, there's Stephen. Of course, I don't, he doesn't know it's Stephen. You know, but, but I can see Stephen right here. Stephen's there, and I go, Mm. He could be dead. Let me go way over here. That way, I can't even see if he's dead or not. Because if he's not dead, if I'm walking by him and I hear him, oh, oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because now I don't have any excuse. I'm not going to be ceremonial unclean. I don't have any excuse for ministering to him now. So you know what we do? Come on now. You know what we do is when we see something going on in our world that's going to challenge us to have to get involved, we just go, hey, I'm going to keep my distance from that. I'm going to stay away from that situation. I'm going to stay away from those people. I'm, going to, I'm just going to stay over here where I can see it from distance because if I get up close, I might find that I have no excuse for not getting involved. Both guys go to the other side of the road. The Bible never said, Numbers 19 didn't say if you get close to him. It said if you touch him. And if there's nobody else around, then nobody's seen that you got close. But or maybe we've gotten ourselves convinced that when God has said one thing, we've gotten convinced that it's a whole lot bigger than what he actually said, and we use it to our advantage. Well, you know, if touching them's bad, then I don't even want to be near him. I'm just going to go the other side of the road and go by. We just focus on going to the other side of the road. We don't think about why did this priest and Levite not just get close to try to figure out whether he's dead or not. Because this is, I'm going to tell you what I believe, since I'm the one preaching. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe they didn't care. I believe that it did not matter. I'm going to come back to that here in just a second. But So while we tend to think about the high cost of caring, consider the impact of what the Samaritan did. Countless acts of sacrificial ministry have taken place across the centuries under the inspiration of his one deed of mercy and love. How many messages have been shared? How many lessons have been taught? How many illustrations on felt boards in kids' church has been done over the years about the good Samaritan, the guy that did for his neighbor when he himself was looked down on and despised by other people? To the robbers, the man was a victim to exploit. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and to help. There's perspective. 
There's some people that they're always they're looking for people that they can exploit. They're looking for people that they can get something from. Some folks are so focused on church and they're so focused on religion and their idea of what they need to do that they will see everyone who interrupts that and needs ministry as being a nuisance and they need to be avoided. But the Samaritan, he was doing something. He was on his way somewhere. And he sees this guy. He comes over. He apparently identifies the guy's not dead. He begins to take care of him. He cleans him up. That's why you have the oil and the wine. You have an antiseptic, and then you have some cleansing that's going on there. And so he binds up his wounds. He gets off of the animal. He inconveniences himself. Now, instead of, you think about this, if he was on an animal, he may be, number one, it was, it was less hard on him because now he could be traveling on the animal instead of walking his 14 miles. He could go this way faster because if he was on the animal, they might could, you know, skedaddle on through here. But now he gets off, he takes and puts this man there so that he can transport him, takes him into this town. I read one commentator that said that, that the amount of money that he gave then was the equivalent of two days' wages for the average person. And he said, if that's not enough, I'm going to come back through this area again, and when I do, then I'll pay whatever it is that it costs. He doesn't set a cap. We don't see him set a limit. He just says, I'll take care of this. So the perspective that Jesus then gives this lawyer is simply this. He said, the lawyer, said the one who showed him mercy. Who was the neighbor? And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do likewise what? Show people mercy. Will we recognize? This is my, this is my, this is it. This is the final question. Will we recognize when life has turned someone around to us into that man lying on the side of the road? Will we be able to look and see that there's somebody who is literally, life has beaten them within an inch of their life? And will we decide, God, I'm going to go over here and see. I'm going to see if there's a pulse left, if there's something that I can nurse back, I'm going to show mercy. Or are we going to go, you know what, I don't have time for that. And go to the other side of the spiritual road and go on around we're going to go do our thing. Which perspective are we going to have? Let's pray.